Please open your Bibles to Psalm 32, the 32nd Psalm. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. Um, We will continue our study of the Psalms. We had finished Luke's gospel after a number of years. God willing, we'll begin studying the epistle to the Ephesians in the fall. And through the summer, we'll be looking at some more of the Psalms. I love the Psalms, love returning here. Um, We've had a number of passes through them in the previous years, and I hope at some point to have taught through all the Psalms, but we'll look at Psalm 32 this morning. I'd like to begin by reading it in its entirety. Psalm 32. A maskeel of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord God, it is my prayer that we would be One's blessed in this way, and the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of being at peace with you. Um, so help us to learn from this psalm, uh, that we might share in that blessing, to heed David's warning against stubbornness, that we too might enjoy the happy estate of being reconciled with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Psalm 32 divides pretty straightforwardly into two sections. When you're looking at the Psalms, you're looking for structural markers in the text itself. And we've got verses 1 through 5 being David's recollection. He's he's giving testimony to the Lord of his past experience. And then there's a clear shift starting in verse 6 where David is now instructing and speaking horizontally to a third party or third parties. So we go from David's recollection in verses 1 through 5 to David's recommendation in 6 through 11. And so the logic of the psalm is in the first five verses, David extols, blesses God, recounting his past experience of being alienated from God and then being forgiven by God and what brought that about and what it was like in both situations. And then based upon David's past experience, he has counsel for us. We're to learn from that, in other words. So we'll dive in with David's recollection, the first five verses. And this now moves along as David recounts um, the events in his past in in three points. First, the blessing of cleansing. David is going to summarize 
He's, he's so joyful, he's so excited, he's so exuberant, overflowing, that even though in the recounting of the event, the forgiveness doesn't come to the end of verse 5, you forgave, my, you forgave the iniquity of my sin, he begins by celebrating it. This is a way of letting us know what the main point is. The main point of this recollection is to point out, to highlight the blessed state of being forgiven, the joy of forgiveness. So, so he, he's just over the top with it right off the bat, and then he sort of tells us how he got there, okay? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And we've talked in the past about how the Hebrew Psalms, poetry, will use parallelism. And here we get a fourfold parallelism. David is going to describe the same event Four ways. We know this because the first three, which speak of what God has done, the first three metaphors of God's forgiveness, can't be three different things. So you get, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And it's, it's clear, I believe, that David is not saying God has done three distinct things for him. The Lord has somehow forgiven his transgression. He's also covered his sin, and he's also not counted iniquity. We're talking about the same thing. It emphasizes different aspects, to be sure. But the, the, the parallelism, we're looking at the same thing. David's describing this blessed, joyful occurrence in this life three different ways, using different vocabulary and different words. His transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. And the Lord has not um, counted. There's that, there's that reckoning term that Paul likes so much in Romans. It's an accounting term. The Lord has not credited or put to his account his iniquity. So, so that is what David is celebrating. But what is interesting is the fourth parallel. The first parallel does not speak of anything God did. The first three are what God has done. The fourth is what, what was taking place in David. And as we'll see, it becomes, this is the decisive key for David's experiencing of forgiveness, which I think is interesting. Um, we, we did a series um, a, a number of years ago on the, the solas of the Reformation. And one of the solas we did not once but twice, because we didn't record it the first time, was faith alone, justification by faith alone. We wholeheartedly believe that, believe the Bible teaches that. And yet, when the scripture makes turns and twists, we want to go with it and not flatten it out with our theology. It is unmistakable here that David, in some sense, is saying, and get this, this is what we want to wrestle through as we work through this psalm, that what prevented him from experiencing forgiveness and what finally changed and enabled him to experience forgiveness was the deceit in his spirit. Notice that. So first, we're describing the same thing four ways. The first three referring to what God has done and whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and whom the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then verse 3 turns right on that. For when I kept silent, there was a time where David's spirit did contain deceit. And that changed and he experienced forgiveness. So one of the things I want to wrestle through as we look at this psalm is, in what sense then, how do we make sense of David saying, 
I did not experience the forgiveness of the Lord. I did not experience the cleansing of the Lord until there was a lack of deception and deceit in my spirit. That, I believe, is what David is saying. That that is how he's framing this. I think if we read through the first five verses, it becomes clear that's what he's getting at. Because, again, if you keep reading, when I kept silent, which I think is a way of describing there being iniquity, he explains in verses three through four the negative effects of that. We'll get to that in a moment. And then in verse five, I acknowledge, we get another fourfold parallel. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So there was a time when there was deceit in David's heart. He was alienated from God. And then he confessed, acknowledged, didn't cover, and God forgave. So that's what I want to look through here. What's also interesting is this is almost certainly not David describing the event of him coming to faith or becoming initially forgiven, what we can refer to in Paul's categories as justification. Um, this is, I do not believe this psalm is recounting David's first experience of faith and confession that brought him to, to, to salvation. Rather, I believe David, this is David describing um, the relational forgiveness that occurs within the life of the redeemed of the Lord's children. First um, John speaks of it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. It's interesting that John puts that in deception that ties in with our categories of honesty and deceit. And the truth is not in us. If we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sin. And in that context of 1 John, what's at stake is fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. In fact, what's very likely, we can't be certain, but what's very likely is that the backdrop of this psalm is the events of 2 Samuel with Bathsheba. We can't be certain, but it seems, it's, regardless, it's a very good fit. David is talking about a time where he hid and concealed his sin. He did not confess his sin. He tried to ignore it and hide it and cover it. And then, after going through this miserable period, he confessed it to the Lord and the Lord forgave him. That seems to be a perfect fit with Bathsheba. So whether or not this is about Bathsheba in that event... I'll use that as a way to help interpret because it certainly is a perfect example of this principle. Certainly a perfect example of that principle. So David begins by recounting the blessing of cleansing with three metaphors for God's forgiveness and one prerequisite on his part, no deceit in his spirit. Okay? And again, I think it's helpful because we, we, we learn about the other terms in the Bible. The Bible, we believe, is justification by faith, salvation by faith. And yet, by looking at these terms and these truths from other angles, we learn things about them. Because I think what we're going to see is whatever David's dealing with here in, in regarding to deceit in his spirit and honesty in his spirit is going to help inform part of what faith and saving faith is and looks like. I think it'll make more sense as we work our way through the first half of this psalm. But just to, to, to reiterate, David is celebrating the joyous state. That word for blessed can mean happy or joyous. How happy, how joyful, how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That is supremely true for us. That is supremely true. The greatest blessing you can experience 
is the forgiveness of God in Christ. Your and my greatest need is that forgiveness. Both to become a Christian, to become one of God's children, and in the daily maintenance of our relationship with God, which is what I think is being dealt with here. Um, If this is the Bathsheba event, David is already in a right relationship with God. David has already been anointed as the Lord's Messiah or Christ, as the King of Israel. David is already forgiven. And David commits a heinous sin. And he tries to cover it up and he tries to hide it. And at least nine months go by because the child conceived by this event is born. And then David is restored. It's a good fit. It may well be exactly what the backdrop of this psalm is. And so this isn't just about forgiveness in the grand, final, salvific justification sense. I I think in the first instance, this is a psalm about the daily ongoing forgiveness and restoration in the life of believers. Which next brings us then to the pain of concealment. So the first two verses celebrate this blessing of cleansing and lay out one prerequisite. What was keeping him from it and what finally became the, the, the hinge on which forgiveness came was deceit no longer being in his spirit. We're going to hold on to that. And we're going to try to resolve that, understand that. I think when we get to verse 5, we will. But next, David recounts the pain of concealment. Now we're looking at the time when he wasn't dealing with his sin or the time when there was deceit in his spirit and he was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. And we begin by its cause, silence towards sin. When I kept silent, there's your causality. What accounts for what follows? He was being silent about something, silent about his sin. My bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. And David recounts both its consistent physical effects and its consistent psychological effects. Um, Unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, embraced hidden sin will eat away at you. Um, It will devour you. And that's what David is writing about here. David went through at least nine months where he attempted to cover up adultery, murder, um, fornication, and involving his military in this. I mean, there's, there's just, you could start stacking up the, the betrayals and the sin of David in, in the, his adultery at Bathsheba. And for about nine months, it looked like he might have gotten away with it. It was sort of holding together loosely. Now, it's frightening because numerous people in, in Israel must have known what was going on. All those messengers, the general who sent Uriah out and called them. I mean, there was people who knew what was going on. But, but David appeared to be getting away with it. And yet we learn here that even though outwardly he appeared to be prospering, even though outwardly he appeared to have gotten away with it, he was being grounded, ground to a pulp by God's hand upon him. My bones, he says, wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah. One of the inescapable realities is your sin will find you out and you will not prosper. I've I've said this to to people before, pleading with them who are choosing to walk in a path of sin. Your sin 
will either lead to immediate discipline now and you'll be miserable and that'll be painful as you prove to be God's child and as a father disciplines you as his son or daughter or your sin will be disciplined in hell. But there's no third, third outcome where you sin and are blessed. There's no third outcome where you sin and ultimately get away with it. So, so why not turn from it now? And that's what David's testifying to. For those who are not redeemed, for those who are not in Christ, their sins will be dealt with finally and fully in hell for eternity. But for God's children, if you've ever been tempted to think, I'll sin, it'll be okay. No, it won't. Your father loves you too much to let you be happy in sin. In fact, if you are happy in sin, that's one of the most fearful situations I can imagine. If to claim to be a child of God, to be embracing sin and not to be disciplined. It's loving of David's father to discipline him. And David confesses to the constant physical effects and the constant psychological effects. David's body is going through atrophy, a lack of energy, I think a lack of sleep, sleeplessness, day and night. He's without rest. These are spiritual realities. I mean, have you stopped to consider that God might physically afflict you because of sin that you aren't dealing with in your life? Don't flip that around to mean that all physical ailments come from sin. We know that's wrong. Jesus' disciples asked him who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind. Jesus said, no one, not all it's not all sickness or illness is due to sin, but certainly some is. David confessed, my bones wasted away. Why? Because I was silent about my sin. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Why? I kept silent about my sin. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Why? I had kept silent about my sin. This is a reality. This is loving of God because it's what brings David to a point of confession and restoration. This is the dark valley David has to go through to get to the happy blessing of forgiveness. These are the tools the father uses to bring his children to forgiveness and to confession. So David recounts the blessing of cleansing, the pain of concealment caused to his Silence towards sin. And now we get to the hinge, verse 5, the act of confession itself. And I think here we'll get some clarity on how to make sense of David putting deceitfulness in his spirit or a lack of deceit in his spirit as the, the hinge or the key that was at first preventing him from experiencing forgiveness and then bringing forgiveness. And David again returns to fourfold parallelism in reverse. Remember in the first In verses 1 and 2, the same thing was spoken of four ways. The first three speaking of what God did. The the fourth speaking of David. Now we get the opposite. The first three in verse 5 speak of what David did. And the fourth, what God did. So we've got an inversion, perfect parallel of the parallelism. And so David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's the first thing he did. I did not cover my iniquity. Second. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Third. And then the fourth is what God did. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. So, I'm taking this to mean then that David is helping unpack what he means by no deceit being in his spirit. By these threefold statements of what he did. So let's, let's take a look at them. Um, the act of confession, point one. We have acknowledgement, transparency, 
and confession of sin. So let's, let's reverse engineer this then. It, what it means is, is during the period where David kept silent, and what he means by keeping silent was, I was silent in regards to acknowledging my sin to you. He was trying to relate to God. Not, let's not talk about that. Let's pretend that's not there. And, and in a scary sense, we can try to do it. We can have sin in our life, that sin that we're not dealing with, sin that we're protecting, and still try to talk to God. We, we won't acknowledge it. We'll pretend it's not there. I mean, it's rather ridiculous. But we, 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 we engage in these games, I think, from time to time. We attempt to, at least. God's not fooled. His hand was upon David. But David was trying to relate to God, pretending his sin wasn't there. You know, it's like when you come home and the kids have been in the chocolate chips and they've got the chocolate all over their face. And then you say, who ate the chocolate chips? And they look at you and they go, I don't, I don't know. And they pretend to not de- That's what you and I are dealing when we're dealing with God. Pretending our sin isn't there. God's not fooled. God's hand is still upon David. But that's what David was. That's part of David's dishonesty, you see. It's, it's a lacking honesty. My children, they're just un- it's only we laugh because they're so unskilled and so unsophisticated in their deception. It's comical. A child with chocolate smeared all over their face going, I didn't eat the chocolate chips. But there's deception that that child is trying to deceive, right? When you or I get on our knees, talk to God, there's, and I'm talking about embraced, protected, um, unacknowledged sin. I'm not talking about the sin we struggle with. I'm not talking about the sin that we confess and we keep, Lord, I did it again. I'm talking about this is off limits. I'm not giving this to God. I'm, I'm guarding and protecting this. It's my precious. And then I'm going to go and try to talk to God anyway. That is deceitful. I think that's part of what David's saying. And I think if you start plugging that in, it makes sense how when you and I refuse to acknowledge our sin to God, and yet we still want to talk to him, we're being deceitful. And that type of deception is going to prevent us from experiencing relational forgiveness. Does that start to click and make more sense? David says, basically, there was a time I refused to acknowledge my sin to you. And a hinge point in experiencing the forgiveness of God in his life was now acknowledging it. Second, I did not cover my iniquity. He had been doing that for at least nine months. He set up an elaborate scheme to cover his iniquity. In fact, the very reason why Uriah had to die was to cover up his initial sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And so, again, if you and I are not confessing, but instead trying to cover up our sin, be sure that is going to compromise your relationship with God. And then finally, the third, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now turn, keep your, keep your thumb here, turn to Second um, Samuel 12. And again, like I said, I can't be certain, unlike Psalm 51 that clearly links it to these events, I can't be certain it's the events of 2 Samuel 12 that are in view, but they're such a perfect fit that whether they are or not, I think they'll help illustrate the point. Um, Now in 2 Samuel 12, David has already um, committed this vile act. He's um, taken the wife of Uriah. He's caused Uriah to be killed in combat. 
and nine months or more have gone by. And Nathan comes to David, and he was a courageous and bold prophet. I mean, imagine being sent to confront the king, a king who can put you to death, a king who part of what you're confronting him on is murdering a man publicly. Nathan obeys God. By the way, we'll see here the love of God. God loved David enough to do what it took to bring him to repentance and confession. And so Nathan, of course, tells David that story about the man who had one sheep and the rich man who stole the sheep and slaughtered the sheep for a guest. And David burns with anger in verse 5. was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And of course, this is literally fulfilled when Absalom publicly despoils David's wives on the roof as he mounts his coup and drives David out of Jerusalem. This is no figure of speech. This is literally done. The sword rising from his own house as David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar then gets assassinated by her brother, Absalom. Oh yeah, all this stuff literally happens in fulfillment of the word of God. So here's this word. Now notice what David's response is in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And as terrible as what David had done was, and we just heard God's anger at it, the ingratitude after all God had done for him, once David is willing to be honest with his sin. Once David is willing to acknowledge it, there's no more scolding. What do you get? The Lord's put away your sin. You shall not die. Forgiveness. Notice point two here, the act of confession. Once David acknowledges his sin, is transparent and confesses his sin, God responds with immediate forgiveness. That's partly why David's celebrating this, how stupid he was to protect and cover his sin for so long, to experience the misery of God's hand upon him, when as soon as he would confess it, there is a restoration of forgiveness. Now notice, forgiveness and restoration does not mean there are no consequences. There are still consequences. Absalom despoils David's wives publicly. We're going to read in just a moment, the child who is born will die. But nevertheless, in immediate response to David's confession and acknowledgments of his sin, there is immediate forgiveness. Nevertheless, verse 14, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. 
The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So if indeed Psalm 32 is written about this event, I think it's very likely. David is celebrating forgiveness even in the midst of consequences. See, oftentimes we complain about the consequences. And I'm sure the consequences, David, were bitter. We know that he went in and prayed all night for the life of that child, interceding on behalf of the life of the child. He was in anguish over the life of the child. We know from reading through the rest of 2 Samuel the anguish David was in as his son dethroned him temporarily. And yet, David accepts the discipline and still speaks of the great joy and happiness of being reconciled and forgiven with God. We we tend to complain that the consequences of our sin are too much, too great. And David here acknowledges his sin, doesn't cover his iniquity, confesses his transgression, and celebrates God's forgiveness. This is the sense in which deceit is in his heart. He was being deceitful because he was unwilling to deal honestly with his sin. And in that sense, an unwillingness and a refusal to deal honestly with our sin, to call it what it is, to talk to God about it, will prevent us from experiencing forgiveness. I think that makes sense. If you can't acknowledge and speak rightfully about your sin, if you're trying to lie to God about your sin, there is no forgiveness for you. Which brings me then to the last point in this first half. And turn to Romans 4. Because whereas Psalm 32, I believe, is speaking to the the restoration and the forgiveness that happens within the family of God. In other words, not about salvation, but about sanctification. Not about justification, but about progressive sanctification. The Apostle Paul cites these two verses in Romans 4 and applies them to salvation and justification. I'll give you the blanks in just a moment. I just want to read what Romans 4 says. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul is strenuously arguing for justification by faith alone. By the way, this is another reason to understand that this lack of honesty, this deception is tied up in what it means to have faith. Because Paul sees no conflict in citing verses 1 and 2 in full in his support of justification by faith. He ends chapter 3, right, with this great statement, verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Then in chapter 4, he begins to defend that premise. And he uses Abraham as his first example, that Abraham was declared righteous before and not after Abraham received circumcision. So it wasn't the act of circumcision saved him. And then he goes on to David. Now look at verse um, 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here's your blanks. The repentance and faith that saves is the very same repentance and faith that sanctifies. The repentance and faith that saves is the very same repentance and faith that sanctifies. What do I, what do I mean? Paul, in defending God's initial 
full forgiveness at salvation, what he will call justification, in defending justification by faith, Paul cites an example of God's forgiveness that comes in the life of David. You get my point? In other words, Paul proves this point not with the event of David's initial conversion, but an event of David's life where he is relationally forgiven. And that only works then if the same, same faith, the same confession of sin that restores us day by day is identical in nature to this initial faith that begins the Christian life. Does that you track with me? Or let me put it negatively to help make it clearer. We are not saved by faith A and then sanctified by a different type of faith. We are not saved by one type of faith and confession. And then day by day as we grow and as we deal with our sin, it's a different type of faith and confession that, that changes us. They are one and the same so that Paul can grab an example from David's life and say, this is how a person becomes right with God. It's the same faith. It's the same confession. This is important because this is the entire basis for which the church deals with sin. If you wrestle sometimes with church discipline, why is it that we would, after someone resists warning once, twice, three, four times, would we say, we fear that you don't know the Lord? The reason is someone's present unwillingness to deal with their sin in faith and confession and their staunch insistence that they won't deal with their sin with faith. The absence of that faith and the absence of that confession of sin suggests the total absence of it, which means they're not a Christian. And again, that only works if the same faith by which we deal with our sin day by day is the same faith that brought us into the family of God. In other words, faith is not a one-time act, which you did sometime in the past to become a Christian. Faith is your breath and pulse and life beat and this continual dealing with sin, this continually confessing to God, this continually being restored in your familiar relationship is the, is the path of the believer. We continue to exercise faith. We continue to deal with our sin. We continue to confess it to God. And so the faith that saves, the confession of sin that saves, the, the acknowledgement, the transparency that is necessary initially to become a Christian. And certainly, that makes sense. You, you can't become a Christian if you won't acknowledge that you're a sinner. If you won't deal honestly with God about your sin. I've made a few mistakes, but I'm a pretty decent person. There is no salvation for you until you're willing to acknowledge, yeah, I am a wretch through and through. And only when you will deal with your sin before God, confess it rightly to him. Speak the truth about it. This is where the honesty comes in. Only when you're willing, only when I'm willing to speak truly about the state of my heart and my sin, will a remedy and a cure and a savior be available. As long as I'm trying to play games, minimize my sin, it's not as bad as you think, and there's certain things we're simply not going to talk about those things. <laughs> There is no hope for such a one. And so the, the, the phrase, in whose spirit there is no deceit, is made clear. What's he mean by that? It means a willingness to acknowledge your sin, not attempting to cover it up, and confessing it to the Lord. Even that word confession, I think, helps explain this. Both the English word confess, con, with, fest to say, and the Greek homologamon, share a common word structure, compound word, meaning to say the same thing. 
To confess is to agree, to say the same thing. That's what it means. And so the idea is this. And we'll sort of move through the process of sin, repentance, and confession. When I am sinning, when you and I are sinning and covering up our sin and holding on to it, we are believing a lie, right? The heart is giving us a lie. You deserve this. It's okay. It's not as bad as you think. It's, it's, it's understandable given your circumstances. And you say, yes, right? So you're believing a lie, just like the woman in the garden did to the serpent. Repentance is the change of mind and heart that enables me to go from disagreeing with God, believing a lie, to agreeing with God and confessing the truth. Because confession is when I say, Lord, you say that was wrong. I agree that was wrong. Lord, you say I should not have done that. I agree. I should not have done that. You say that is wicked. I too say that is wicked. That's what confession means, to agree with God. The challenge is, will we say about our sin what God says about our sin? Will we say about our guilt what God says about our guilt? Or will we make excuses, minimize, blame shift, this woman you gave me? You know. And so that's the movement. When we are embracing sin, we are believing a lie. We are necessarily speaking a lie because we're justifying our sin. We're speaking wrongly about it. We move in repentance to a place where we now agree with God and can say what he says after him. That's the, that's the shift in the movement. And that same faith, that same willing to acknowledge, willingness to acknowledge our sin that takes place at conversion is the same confession that moves through the Christian life sanctifying us. So what that means backwards then, let me just give the warning this way. If you are one who sometime in the past confessed your sin to God, spoke rightly about it, trusted in Christ, then that same confession and faith ought to continue with you in your life day by day by day by day. That's what it means. And a failure in your present life to act by faith, to deal with your sin brings into question the reality of what you think happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. That, that's the language of 1 John. Turn, turn to 1 John. I, and I know I'm making, pausing here to make this point, but it's crucial. So often we look for assurance of our salvation as something that happened in the past. The Bible continually tells us to look to the present faith in your life. Um, because we can deceive ourselves, which is exactly what 1 John will talk about, Deceive ourselves and excuse our current deadness and then cling to some hope or belief about something that happened many moons ago. But look at 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And again, what he puts on the table is ongoing fellowship with God and with each other. There's that relational forgiveness. And he puts on the table the issue of potentially being outside the family of God if we're not dealing with our sins. So here we go. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you and my fellowship with God, ongoing day by day, is conditioned absolutely upon our walking in the light. God doesn't move out of the light. He stays in the light because he is light. There's no darkness in him at all. So if you and I are in darkness, we've moved, not him, And we're not in fellowship with him. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So now we learn that our walking in the light not only is the prerequisite for our ongoing fellowship with God, it's the prerequisite for our ongoing fellowship with one another. Well, what do we do when we sin and are not walking in the light? Are we just in trouble? Okay, fellowship's done. No. We have to confess it. He deals with it negatively in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Now he's starting to question the actual salvation of someone who's refusing to deal with their sin. The truth is not in them. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the Christian life is one of continually trying to walk in the light. And when we step out of it and, and the spirit or another person brings our attention to it, we confess it and we get back in the light. That's the Christian life. A continual, plodding, clumsy, imperfect attempt to follow after Jesus walking in the light. Continually getting dirty, cleansing, or confessing our sin, getting back in. That's the day in and day out life of the Christian. And that's no different than the beginning of that life. What maintains our life as Christians is no different than what began it. Turning to Christ, looking to him for forgiveness, dealing honestly with our sin, crying out for pardon to God. Okay, that's David's recollection. That's David's recollection. Let's deal now with David's recommendation. David's recommendation. We've got to move quickly. Well, I think that point is, is important enough to, to warrant attention. I've tried to give it. First, pray to God. Pray to God. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they will not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. Now, David's first warning as he talks to us about his own experience is... Pray to God before it's too late. There comes a time when it is too late. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you. I think in the context of what prayers are confession, prayers dealing honestly with sin. Offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. See, our temptation is to to hold off confession for as long as possible and, and then tell ourselves at the last moment... We'll confess our sin. And what David's saying is, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes there is no last moment. The last moment was sometime in the past. Um, we're not read it. There isn't time to read it now, but read Proverbs chapter 1, 20 to 33 sometime, and read about what usually happens when people ignore reproof. What usually happens is they harden themselves to a point of no return and perish. That's usually what happens. There are exceptions, but read Proverbs 1, 20 to 33, and read about what normally happens. And so David's saying, don't wait. Don't delay. If you are harboring sin in your life today, deal with it. Seek God while he may be found. That's his first urging. Pray to God before it is too late, because the Lord defends all who call on him. See, once, even though David's going to experience the consequences of his sin, once he's back in a right relationship with God, God protects him. God surrounds him with his love. Next, submit to God. Submit to God. 
You see that in verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle. It will not stay near you. Now this, by the way, actually might be the fulfillment of what David promised in Psalm 51. Remember in Psalm 51, David says to the Lord um, the following, Restore to, me, o, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David promises God, if you will but forgive and restore me, after you do that, I will teach others. What's he doing right here? I will teach you. I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Here's an observation. David's failure, his epic failure, his awful failure, becomes an opportunity for him to instruct others. I, I know people who think because of their failures, they're in no position to offer any encouragement, any help to others. That's dead wrong. We all learn so much from David because David is willing to speak honestly about his failures and instruct us in light of it. David has just recounted in the first five verses his failure, the Lord's discipline, his ultimate confession, the joy of his restoration. And now he's saying, don't be like me. Confess your sin to God today. Even your failures, rightly spoken of, we're not minimizing them. We're not protecting yourself. You have something to offer others. You can encourage and instruct from your failures. David is. Submit to God. David's failure becomes an opportunity for him to instruct others. And then, but the problem is you've got to humble yourself. Because David's basically saying, don't be like me. I was a dumb beast. That's what he's saying. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle. You know, and so God has to send Nathan to you. I'm sure that wasn't fun to be publicly called out like that by Nathan. Now, ultimately, David is rejoicing in it because that was the means that brought him to confession. But David, I think, is saying to you and to me, it'd be better to confess before that has to happen. And so he's humbling himself. I was like a beast. I was like a dumb ox. I needed a bit put in my mouth. Don't, don't be like that. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or not stay near you. Submit to God. Don't be stubborn. Don't be a beast. Submit to God. David's failures became an opportunity for him to instruct others. Do not stubbornly resist God's discipline. That's what David is saying. He's saying, learn from my mistakes. You can edify the body of Christ by telling others to learn from your mistakes. I can do the same. It's not just through our successes that we can instruct and encourage. Third, trust in God. Trust in God. Many, he says in verse 10 of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And again, the contrast is clear. A path of sorrows and difficulties a path of being surrounded and enveloped by steadfast love if you will but trust in the Lord. Trust in God. The sorrows of the wicked multiply, but God's covenant love surrounds all who trust in him. And David can say that even though there were consequences. 
His consequences don't even come close to what really matters, which is his peace with God, his forgiveness with God, his relationship with God is, is above in value, all those other things. So yes, the child died. Yes, there'll be strife in his home. Yes, all of that is true, but I have peace with God, he's saying, and so God's covenant, steadfast love surrounds me, but many are the sorrows of the wicked. And finally, rejoice in God, rejoice in God. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So our ongoing dealing with sin, our willingness to speak about it rightly, confessing it to God, is of huge importance. It's the basis on which we maintain our relationship with God. It's the basis on which we maintain our peace with him, our intimacy with him. And David would have us learn from him that we don't follow in his steps, that we don't have to go through that difficult discipline. And so I'd urge you, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I believe Pastor Daniel will give us a moment to deal with that sin. But let's pray now as we transition.